0: The Outlet The Talk of Queenstown Welcome to The Outlet I'm your host Brent Harbour and this podcast I talk to Catherine Wright Catherine specialises as a rural counsellor and is about to start her PhD where her topic of research will be around small rural community wellbeing We talk about Catherine's journey to counselling and her key findings from research she's done so far This interview talks about mental health, and if you're feeling anxious, overwhelmed, or out of sorts, here's some numbers that can connect you 24 hours a day to people trained to help. Free call or text 1737. The Mates and Construction helpline is 0800 111 315. Lifeline is 0800 543 354. Or if it's an emergency, and you feel like you or someone else is at risk, please call 111. You're listening to The Outlet. From your Queenstown app. Hi Catherine, welcome to The Outlet. Thanks Brent. Now could you please share with me what initially sparked your interest in psychology, sociology and social services and how it led you to specialising in being a rural counsellor?
1: I guess I've always been interested in people, their thought processes, interested in society in general and and always kind of known that they've always had some kind of a relationship but just having these abstract ideas. I've always been interested with how towns or places deal with tragedy. I grew up here in Tiara and I guess my childhood was in the 80s, right in the middle of the Venison aviation boom. So uh, my father was involved with that and I experienced a lot of death, a lot of tragedy, exclusively men. That, that happened too and that's evident as you go to our local cemetery here. I guess After that, I didn't pursue a career in it. I actually was in hospitality, and then I was a cake decorator of all things. But about 2015, I just had this moment where I thought that I I need some more meaning in my life. I I perhaps need to do something with these wonderings that I have, and i always loved to write. I've not had a problem with writing, so I thought maybe I need to do something. So I jumped straight into a very big degree, a double degree in sociology, in psychology. I tend to not do things by halves and I, I always finish something when I start it. So I completed that. I did a lot of volunteering. So I was with Victim support. I was with Able, a few other sorts of things, a guest writer on on a lot of publications as well. But it just started to naturally drift into rural mental health. I am on a farm. So I'm a farmer's wife. We have a deer farm here in Te So you are facing it, the issue Professionally, I guess, well, with your study, with your research and as a, just a person on a farm. So I am, I am here. I'm situated in the context of my community. I was able to see and experience what might've been going on for people. But the biggest thing was that when I started my first degree, I found out really quickly that what we thought about rural mental health wasn't what was portrayed in the media. So, When you think about rural mental health, you think about stock prices, fluctuations in the market, weather, and those things do affect people, don't get me wrong, but it was overwhelmingly the young men that that were in trouble. So the suicide rates, the the poor mental health rates, it was in the young men where that lay. So that kind of sparked off a journey, which took me into the Bachelor of Social Services, which enabled me to be a registered counsellor. And then more and more, it just started to come out at me that something needed to be looked into here. We needed to. We had the statistics that showed they were in trouble, but not the research to back it up. So I guess that's when I um, embarked on my master's research.
0: And from that too, with your master's research, which is barriers to seeking help for mental health issues in young rural males, what were the key findings of your research, Catherine?
1: So I completed that research about the middle of last year, and my findings were that there were three barriers. So I was studying young men between the ages of 16 and 30 years old. I did a sequential mixed methods design, so I did a mixture of a survey and individual interviews with the men and with stakeholders. So the three main barriers were, unsurprisingly, there was a shame factor there. So not wanting people to find out, not wanting bosses to find out, not wanting their dad to find out. That came up a few times, heartbreakingly. So there was that, and that's the hardest one to address. There's a knowledge barrier there around, am I bad enough to seek help? Do I, am I, or will I be taking a spot from somebody that needs it more? or where do I even go to find somebody to get that help? I have no idea where to start, that kind of thing. Then there was the practical barriers. So being able to afford help, again, not knowing where to find someone, uh, having to get time off work, having to potentially leave the farm for a whole day to travel to an appointment, have the appointment and travel home. Um, these two barriers are, are quite addressable. So video calling, yeah, like, like we're doing now, bring us, work so well and you don't need to take any extra time of work you can do that in your lunch hour very accessible and really effective as well we got used to that in lockdown so that's been one good thing about the lockdowns is that we've got very used to used to telehealth and and pretty much all counsellors mental health professionals will do that now so that's been a good thing community connection came out as something that was really important so connecting with groups so in terms of the population that I studied, connecting through young farmers, dog trials, rugby clubs, things like that, it didn't really seem to matter what they were doing as long as they were being around people, people that they had things in common with. So that was a really important thing that came out. Another very, very salient finding was that it appears that farm managers, stock managers, etc., need to have some kind of training for basic mental health issues to recognise when something might be going wrong, how to help somebody, what to say, what not to say. A lot of heartache, I guess, tends to stem from how these young men are being treated in their jobs. Another one that came out was firearms, our firearms licences and and mental health issues so people not wanting to seek help because they're frightened they'll get their licence taken off them. I won't go into detail on that, but I will just say that it is not a black and white decision. It is a case-by-case basis. And if you are open about what's going on and that you are addressing it, generally the police will work with you on that one. If you're interested to know more on that, Please find Glenn Thurston. He's he has a social media presence called Turn the Corner. He's Wanaka based. He's doing some really good work in that space. So the whole, I guess, premise for this research was to find out what these barriers are and to try and break them down. So one of the the hugest things was that mental health professionals and health professionals, it goes a really long way to be relatable. So to talk in a way that's casual, to understand the farming year, understand farming pressures and get what it's like to actually be isolated on a farm and and how that might affect a client or patient that might need to come and see you and and how difficult that is, so to to try and get there. So all of my findings were condensed into information for every counsellor, GP and and psychologist in New Zealand that that listed these things and talked about how to care for this population. And I, I actually won the 2022 Educational Excellence Award for that research. Um, so that's kind of the research finance in a nutshell. But going on to um, um, whether, whether or not this rise in mental health issues for rural people, I would say no. I would say there's not particularly a rise in mental health issues for rural people. I would say that it's always been there. It's always been there, but perhaps hasn't been investigated more because, while well, clearly, the title of my master's research is that they don't seek help. They tend to suffer in silence. So it's been very difficult to measure. I do, on the other hand, think that mental health problems are going up in general across the country. Would would you like me to talk about my theories about that, Brent?
0: Absolutely. I think what you've touched on there really is happening worldwide so it'd be great to hear more on that.
1: So they are on the rise in general. That's possibly partly to do with more people presenting with mental health challenges because as as time goes by and it gets more acceptable people are, are presenting more which is a great thing. That's what we want but it does make the statistics look worse so we just have to recognise that. The world has become really complex in part due to globalisation caused by internet. I'm not saying that the internet is a bad thing. It's done some great things for us. But we aren't connecting with people on a deep level like we used to. We feel like we're connecting with people through Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. And there is a connection there, don't get me wrong. But it is not a deep connection that we actually fundamentally need and crave as human beings. It's evolutionary that we would need to feel that connection. And when we don't feel it in huge, vast numbers across the world, it's going to affect us for sure. So this is a sense of disconnection, I guess, that we're feeling. The other thing that I notice is, and this is a, a Western issue as far as I can see, is that we expect that the default emotion should be happiness. We should be happy all the time. We strive for that and anything else is failure. We just want our kids to be happy. We want happiness. Every single person that sees me, I just want to be happy. The thing is that we have about 76 emotions and we cannot expect to just have the one emotion all of the time. It is normal to have pits and, and peaks of emotion. They are all very normal. I, I think it's more helpful to strive for contentment. So, And even where we say to our kids we want them to be happy, that's actually a massive burden for them. I've got to be happy all the time for my parents, or or I'm not doing what I want, what they want me to do. So, if that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, I think so. And and you know, I think that actually causes anxiety, doesn't it? Because you're you, you're trying to be happy all the time. And I think there's a definite rise in anxiety. And you should just be free to to feel those emotions and have the good and the bad times. And certainly, I know with my family, we always talk through the the good and the bad as well.
1: That's so much more helpful. Yeah, so we need to get over this notion that happiness is the default for how we have to be. The final thing that I guess I I see on that is that we used to compare ourselves to people at school, people in the next farm, people down the street or in your town or or maybe, you know, celebrities on TV. Now we are literally connected and comparing ourselves to everybody in the world. It's also an evolutionary kind of urge to to want to be as good as everybody else, because back in the caveman days, if you didn't keep up, then you were kicked out of your clan. And if you were kicked out of your clan, you would die. You needed medicine, resources, food, you need to share all those things, so... really important to fit in, but it's increasingly difficult with billions of people that you could potentially compare yourself to.
0: Yeah, I think so. And social media does have a lot to answer for. As you say, it has its good points, but definitely I think it contributes to your health and well being and your anxiety and your fear and your your comparisons and, you know, even the bullying aspect of it. All these things used to kind of happen in a schoolyard or at work or whatever, not for everyone to see.
1: Exactly, yeah, and now it's always on, it never switches off, it's difficult to live up to that. Having said that, particularly for young people who might have a unique interest or might fit into a minority, it doesn't matter where they live in the world, they can find their people online, which is kind of cool, so... Definitely not all bad.
0: Now you're doing your PhD research, which is focusing on rural community well-being and those factors that influence it, so what do you hope to uncover from your new research, Catherine?
1: So um, I have started at University of Otago, so I'm, I'm with the Centre for Sustainability. Rural Community Connection was one of the things that came out of my master's research that got me thinking more. And I also see how much it helps on the ground when I'm working as well. So I have no doubt that it that it helps people in town. So I'm talking about organised groups. So I mentioned before young farmers, dog trials, rugby, but then this research is for all rural people. So rural women's play groups, netball groups, you name it, all of those things. So how do these things to the well-being in those rural populations? And on the flip side, what are the things that threaten or harm that rural connection? And the number one aspect that I'll be looking at on the flip side of this is productive sheep and beef land going into forestry. That is something that I see as a real threat. There's been 22 farms around Balcluther alone that have recently been sold to forestry. This will reduce our communities so much that it will hurt those people but and we know that, it's all over the media, it's everywhere but at this point in time there is no academic research to back up that claim and that's where I come in, so that is what I'm doing I could be yet also delving into so how government regulations might be hurting those communities as well so this is not in any way to argue about government regulations it's saying that they are they have increased so much that farming will one day become unviable and those farms what will happen to those farms and what will happen to the people of those farms because people are going out of farming now because it is becoming unviable. So those are what I'm looking into. The things that I hope to achieve out of that would be that if I can get some really good data on how much rural community connection helps people and how much it is being harmed by those factors, this is potentially a piece that could be used for policy change. I don't intend to do that personally, but I'm handing the tools to the people that want to do that. But also for people that are involved in these groups, it will be a tangible piece of evidence for them to be able to apply for funding for these small groups so here's the proof here that this is going to help us Can we get this funding but also social services and NGOs that might be missing in a town so they might be more likely to go there if they can see evidence that this will help
0: those people. That's really important too, because it's easy to make all these decisions at a agency or a government level, but it's you've really got to know the what the impact will be before you do them. And if you haven't got the research, then they just rush off and get it all done, don't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I've seen that happen, especially since COVID. The impact that it leaves behind is often not recognised and it's certainly not measured. So I hope to change that.
0: So can you please tell me a little bit about your counselling approach and can you share a success story of the difference it's made in someone's life?
1: I had to to really think about this one, but I guess I just want to say first that I think that psychology, sociology and counselling are heavily intertwined within each other. I'm really glad that I did as much work as I did because it allows you to look at people's different situations through different context lenses. So you will, with sociology, you will understand how to stand back and look at a community and understand how public issues can cause private problems. So that is the whole premise of, of sociology. So I can understand the context of where they've come from, why this might be happening. Obviously, psychology is very much based on thought processes and things about the human brain and mind but then counselling is essentially how to be with a person so the three all lean against each other and I'm so glad that I did make the effort to do all three I guess. The one thing that I think is hugely important for what I do and I do specialise in rural mental health so I do see people all over the country on farms. I've spoken to people in tractor cabs and and, in trucks and in paddocks and sheds and y- you name it is to be and i mentioned this before with my master's finance is to be relatable speak like a normal person you know if they've had a really creepy time you know saying something like that sounds like a complete and utter shit show that's going to get you more places than saying how does that make you feel which incidentally i've never said to a client and i'll refuse to ever say it so i make a point of understanding fun processes and times of year so I know when lambing is, I know when calving is, I know when milking happens, I know roughly the times of days that these things happen, I know when crops go in. I make a point of understanding what has gone on with the weather so that how that might have affected my clients um, even in different parts of the country so I can know what's going on for them because it's massive. To just really understand what that might be like for them, it's so important so my approach for anybody that might be familiar with counselling approaches, so first and foremost, I'm person-centred. So I will try to understand, I will, no matter what, I will I will have positive regard for that person. I know that whatever they're doing, there's a reason for what they're doing. I will accept them as they are right in that moment. So I work with five and up, so right from five-year-olds and up, I will take that approach. That is the cornerstone of how I work. I am trained in several modalities, but the one that I use equally as much as being a person-centred counsellor is something called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, for short, um, if anybody's heard of that before. So that is all about accepting difficult thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So we talked about happiness before. This is being okay with feeling how you feel, accepting the difficult sensations i guess because they all show up in your body and um and thoughts and making space for those they're, they're part of being human they tell you what you care about there's that uh, contact with the present also known as mindfulness but i would i do not use that word normally but for context i just want to say that so contacting the present moment to bring your mind out of the future and out of the past and focus on here and now because the here and now is all we ever have and when you can do that you will give your brain your consciousness a rest okay so the other way is self context so we learn to separate ourselves from our thoughts we see our thoughts from a distance we're not making them go away we just learn that they are also part of being human and to diffuse is the word is to diffuse from the control that they might have over your life committed action so Doing the things that matter to you, making a point of actually doing what matters to you, even though you might be having a crap day, even though things are really rough, that that's what you will do. And finally, values, which backs on to committed action. Finding out what gives your life meaning and purpose, and if you've stopped doing those, getting you back to doing those, or finding anew what those things might be and incorporating them into your life. So, yeah, that's the cornerstone, I guess. I also use music, podcasts, books, poetry, art, journaling, so many things. Yeah. The success I had, I had to really think about this. The fastest success stories I've ever, ever seen, and this was not a particular case, is when I use something called the rewind technique. So it's a light hypnotherapy technique. That is used for trauma and phobias. I won't go into now what that is, but I have seen in one session thoughts and feelings fused around trauma and pain, the pain completely taken away from them. It is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my profession, or in my job that I do anyway. Apart from that, the biggest success is getting someone in the room. So it's taken a lot for somebody to contact me, it's in some cases taken months. Months to pick up that phone or to email, and I respect that, and I appreciate that that was not easy. So that's a huge success. But this relief after a first session of that feeling of, of release, it's seeing people become unstuck. So people come to see me, they're not broken, they, they are stuck, and I often say that to them. But becoming unstuck and being willing to do something else or to try and think a different way hugely rewarding seeing or usually what you would hear about is their families benefiting so their family their kids have noticed that dad's different or that that mum's you know more more engaged with them or or something like that hearing these things is just you know that that ripple effect has made such a difference but finally seeing people living their life to what gives them purpose and meaning in their life where before they might not have been doing that and that is just the best feeling to know that they are doing that because of things that we talked about. It's huge.
0: I mean that is so rewarding for you all that hard work is, um, is making a difference in people's lives isn't it?
1: It's so rewarding. I may feel like falling asleep when I get home um, sometimes. It's so rewarding and it's quite different to my research but also not. very It's intertwined but also separate, if that makes sense. I love what I do.
0: So congratulations on receiving the NZI Rural Women New Zealand Business Award in the health and wellbeing category. Can you tell me a bit more about the work that earned you that recognition? So
1: um, I am a rural woman's member. When I applied for it, I saw it and I wasn't really sure about the significance of it. I thought, oh, you might get, you know, your name in the newsletter or something. But My motivation was always that the more attention that I can draw to the cause of rural mental health, the more I can get people talking about it or I can use my findings to publicise what is going on and what can we do to help this, the better. Then when I I kind of realised the significance, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I found out about a week before it got announced but then you see the other award winners and you just think, Oh wow, these ladies are all like at the top of their game and I'm part of that. Like I think that is so cool. So I'm absolutely stoked. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy with that.
0: If people are struggling and they don't know where to start, how do they get in touch with you, Catherine? So personally
1: I always had pretty low availability, so I think I've got about a two-month wait at the moment, which is not ideal. But, yeah, you can't make more hours in the day, unfortunately. But having said that, anybody that contacts me, I would tell them how to get help. So I do have a website, which is, is just kathrynwright.co.nz. All of my details are wrong, yeah. Please just ask. Having said that, a GP is always a really good place to start because a GP will know what is available in your area so every area has a specific set of I guess professionals and services that they offer or don't offer also through a brief and through GPs you can uh, ask for something called brief intervention counselling so they just five funded sessions and you will be allocated to a counsellor you can pick whether it's in person or online and, and there's obviously benefits to both of that and you will know what what's right for you if you want to search a counsellor yourself so my professional body is the new zealand association of counsellors they have a website which is nzac.org.nz and on that website they have a search function you can narrow down gender, location, ethnicity, age. You can find exactly what it is that you're looking for. And by going through a professional body, you can be sure that they will have appropriate qualifications and, and ethics. Because unfortunately, counsellor is not a protected term. But for safety or ethics and everything like that, it's really important that you do find someone who knows what they're doing. There's a website called justathought.co.nz, which has fantastic courses and they're free and you can put yourself through these courses. There's anxiety, depression, health anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, and OCD by memory. So they are all on there and they're free and evidence-based. But whatever you end up doing, if you reach out for help, it is more than likely that you are going to think to yourself afterwards what took me so long.
0: Well, Catherine, thank you so much for having a chat today. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and the help you're giving to the community. And I'm sure we'll have a chat again once you've finished your PhD.
1: Yeah, that would be my pleasure, Brett.
0: And just a reminder of those numbers again, free call or text 1737. The Mates in Construction helpline is 0800 31315 Lifeline is 0800 543 354 or if it's an emergency and you feel like you or someone else is at risk, please call 111. Download the Queenstown app from the App Store or Google Play. Thanks for listening to The Outlet, your local interview podcast for Queenstown. Now, if you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on The Outlet podcast, get in touch by using the contact button on your Queenstown app. The outlet is produced and published by the Queenstown app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. All episodes of the outlet are available on the podcast button on your Queenstown app and wherever you get your podcasts.